0: Welcome to the P.A. Books Podcast. P.A. Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors
1: of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. We hope you enjoy this podcast.
0: This is P.A. Books, featuring authors of books about Pennsylvania's people, politics, history, business, and recreation. This
1: week, Michael Berkner discusses his book, James Buchanan and the Political Crisis of the 1850s.
0: Michael Berkner, editor of James Buchanan and the Political Crisis of the
1: 1850s. How is James Buchanan remembered today? Well, he's remembered in different ways. I think he's remembered as a hometown hero uh, in various places in Pennsylvania. Uh, by the historical community he tends to be remembered as uh, one of our less impressive presidents
0: now uh, you refer to him in your book as a supple politician yes what does that mean
1: well i think it means that he was a person who of considerable political accomplishments he was a person who uh, could present himself effectively and he did not necessarily come down very hard on all issues so that he had some maneuvering room as a politician. He wanted to get some things done and he knew that you often get things done in the center talking on both, to both sides, if not necessarily out of both sides of your mouth. And He was viewed as more of an operator than a person who was highly principled. Was he good at it? Yes. Uh, as I argue in the introduction to the book, uh, one of the things you have to say about Buchanan, whether you like him or not, is he was highly successful as a politician. The only... Uh, 41 people have gotten elected president of the United States. He was one of them. Uh, That speaks for itself. But think about his career. Think about the offices he held. He was a state representative. He was a congressman. He was a United States senator. He was an ambassador both to uh, Russia and to Great Britain. He was secretary of state and he was president. You have to be pretty good to get those jobs. What skills did he have that made him a good politician? I think you start with with, uh, basic intelligence. It's clear if you study Buchanan that everybody agrees he's a bright man. Even people who don't like him respect him for his basic intelligence. He's got political skills, which he develops over time because he's committed to this world. He's a lawyer, right? In the 19th century, the great majority of lawyers played or practiced politics some of the time. Some of them, like Buchanan, wanted to use the law as a springboard into a political life uh... he had the skills i think from the beginning to be successful on a local level in lancaster county um, anywhere really in pennsylvania that he had wanted to set up shop uh, the question for any politician is how high can you go what are your talents going to be uh, adapted to he found out by going to washington that he could play that political game now he had some missteps in washington he fumbled around a little bit in the eighteen twenty four presidential election but he learned some lessons from his missteps uh, he became more supple and canny. He didn't show his cards uh, as often up front right away. Uh, I think the general answer to your good question, though, is that uh, Buchanan knew how to work with people. He had the intelligence to read a bill and to understand the intricacies of legislation and log rolling in legislation. And he was a person also who was a Hale Fellow well met. People liked his company like sharing a drink with him. He was good in social situations? Absolutely, very good in social situations. Um, you have to picture this man who's sort of a heavy-set fellow, although I gather from various sources he was, he was quite light on his feet, despite his bulk, um, who enjoyed uh, a good glass of Madeira and something stronger sometimes, who would have a cigar in his hand, who loved the time that you spent outside in the tavern, outside of the legislative halls in the tavern, having small talk, He was particularly amiable with women, uh, but he enjoyed male friendship as well. Uh, Was it at all significant that he was a bachelor? Um, In terms of his political career, I don't think it's terribly significant. Uh, I think it's it's just one of those things. Uh, I really can't get inside of James Buchanan's head. I don't know that anyone has ever done that. Uh, We have, as far as I'm concerned, the best uh, imagination of what Buchanan was going through in terms of his personal life through novels by John Updike. Um, The most notable being one with the unusual title of Memories of the Ford Administration, which is actually a double story about someone who lived in the Ford era in the 1970s as a college professor who was writing a biography of James Buchanan, and who tries to imagine what it was like to be young James Buchanan, and then later President James Buchanan. And he has an imaginative imaginative way, Updike does, of capturing what Buchanan might have been thinking and feeling at different stages in his life. But historians haven't done as well.
0: It says in the book that he had a reputation for being faithless to friends. Is there an example of that you can think of?
1: I think that the person who made that statement uh, in the book was referring to his failure to reward one of his very close collaborators in the 1856 presidential election, a man named John Forney, who you could argue really made it possible for Buchanan to win the presidency. The 56 election was an extremely closely contested election. And Pennsylvania was the kingpin state. It would determine, probably, whether John Fremont or Buchanan was elected president, or whether the election was thrown into the House of Representatives, because it was a third party candidate that year. John Forney was a newspaper editor, an ally of Buchanan, He really spent as much as a human being could spend of his own money. He worked very hard day and night to get Buchanan elected, and he got Buchanan the votes of Pennsylvania by a very narrow margin. And Buchanan didn't give Forney very much for all of his efforts, and Forney was very bitter about it. And I think that may be the reference. In terms of his overall life experience with people, I think generally he was a very good friend to people. Uh, People liked him. He would not have been considered a, a, a double dealer on the whole. You also
0: say, in your introduction to the book, like him or not, he was a formidable figure. Yes. And he doesn't necessarily have a historical reputation as being formidable. How was he
1: formidable at the time? Well, I think that we have to separate, to some degree, historical analysis of Buchanan and the secession crisis or Buchanan and the controversy over Kansas during his presidency from the overall texture of his political career. Um, I think my answer before about the overall shape of his career is relevant to, to an answer to your question now. I mean, this is a man uh, who succeeds. He doesn't get beat when he runs for office. He's forced to be considered for the presidency in 1844, 1848, 1852, and then gets the prize in 56. Um, he has to be formidable or he would not be in Polk's cabinet as Secretary of State. You know, He would not be minister to England under Pierce. Let's do a little biographical background of him. Where was he born? He was born in Mercersburg, Pennsylvania. His father uh, was a Scotch-Irish and was a successful local merchant. Uh, Grew up, I think you'd say, in in comfortable but not opulent circumstances in Mercersburg. Went to Mercersburg Academy, and then went on to Dickinson College as a young man and and spent some happy and not happy times at Dickinson College.
0: He was kicked out of Dickinson for a time?
1: (laughs) He was. Again, we don't have lots of hard evidence about his early life experience or his years at Dickinson, but I think you could make a couple of generalizations fairly confidently. One, he was smart and he was somewhat exuberant and you could argue he was somewhat arrogant. Uh, As kids between the ages of 18 and 22 might be, he was sowing his oats and he wanted to see just how far he could go. I think he got on the nerves of some of the administrators at Dickinson College and he said something or did something, we're not clear what, that got him kicked out uh, of the college and he was only reinstated because a local man from Mercersburg who was on the Dickinson Board of Trustees um, put in a good word with the president and they gave him a second chance. You say he was never a terribly loyal alumnus? Yes, he was a bitter alumnus for a while not because he'd been kicked out uh, and then reinstated But because when he graduated, he had a very good record at Dickinson College. And he had friends uh, who he thought also were bright and deserved reward. And he pressed very hard with the president that they should get the highest honors, he and his closest friend, at Dickinson in the year they graduated. And for for reasons that aren't very clear, um, the administration took umbrage at his uh, advocacy, which may have been a little bit, again, too, too much of a push. And they didn't give him the honors, and they didn't give his friend the honors. And he went out of Dickinson with a bitter taste in his mouth. Now to finish the story off, I should say that Buchanan uh, has nothing to do with Dickinson College directly for many, many years while he's setting up a a law practice and developing a political reputation in in Lancaster. But midway through his career, um, there are some initiatives made to get him interested in Dickinson again and he's asked if he would settle a dispute at the college and he agrees to do that and and we have evidence that he became much more uh, friendly toward Dickinson College in the later years of his life although in truth his interest was much more in Franklin and Marshall College uh, which was in his own bailiwick. Did he go to law school? Uh, No in those days you didn't go to law school you read law and and that's how he winds up in Lancaster is he reads law. And you don't get a formal uh, degree in law. What you do is you read it for a certain number of, of uh, months or years. And then when your mentor decides that you're ready, you will be examined by local lawyers who will then certify that you're able to practice law. And you make formal petitions uh, to be admitted to the bar. Are you still allowed to read the law today? Uh, that's a good question. Uh, my guess is that it's much more formalized now and, and that in a few states it may be possible, that it, but I'm, I'm suspecting in most states in the United States it's not possible to get a law degree at admission to the bar that way. Now when did Buchanan first get into politics? Well he got into politics during the War of 1812. Um, the interesting thing about Buchanan of course is that his first political allegiance is as a Federalist, and he's in effect a rat joining a sinking ship because uh, what you have is a Federalist Party that is uh, in decline after the presidency of Thomas Jefferson and Buchanan allies with the Federalist Party and is elected to office for the first time as a Federalist and remains in some mild way aligned with the Federalist Party into the 1820s when it, it gradually dies out and is replaced. What office? Well he's, he's elected to the, to the local legislature and then he's, and then he's elected to Congress and he serves in Congress for, I think, three terms. And then he makes the bid for the United States Senate in 1824, at a time when party uh, allegiances are, are still being reformed in the wake of uh, the election of 1824. What had happened was is the Federalists died out uh, sort of in infamy because they had opposed the War of 1812. And uh, everybody claimed to be a Republican thereafter, except Buchanan, one of the few who could still identify as a Federalist and get elected to office and when there was a new presidential race in 1824 basically the deck was reshuffled and Buchanan aligned himself with Andrew Jackson of Tennessee who would become of course the great father of the Democratic Party as we know it. Now
0: um, he he got uh, became a force in Pennsylvania politics was
1: the head of a faction yeah I mean he was he was th- that's well put actually, because what Pennsylvania politics is almost like Chinese politics is a bunch of warlords fighting it out and it, factionalism is exactly the word to use to describe the Pennsylvania political uh, universe. Uh, part of it, I think, has to do with the Pittsburgh Philadelphia axis and the fact that the people who are locally powerful in Philadelphia have no uh, say in Pittsburgh and vice versa, and the two sides are always seeking to get advantage over the other. Uh, Buchanan being in the center of the state, you know, was not caught up in those kinds of rivalries. I think that helped him. Uh, But what he does is he goes to the legislature and he gets known as a man who can do business and do it well and also being likable is a great asset no matter what uh, generation you're talking about in politics. If someone is a, a bad news character or just plain dull, they're not likely to get as far. Who are his adversaries? The, probably the principal adversary he had in Pennsylvania politics over many years was a, uh, a figure named George Mifflin Dallas. Uh, George Dallas is best known today uh, as a vice president of the United States. He served uh, James K. Polk as vice president. Polk, Dallas, and the tariff of 1844 was the great uh, war cry of the Democrats that year. Dallas and, and, and uh, Buchanan, as I see them, were people who were too much alike to get along. Uh, you know, And they each had... Uh, national ambitions and it was inevitable that they were going to collide. And it's very interesting uh, to, to watch these parallel careers because they're almost like wrestlers who are sort of trying to get the the edge for the takedown against the, their adversary. It happens they were both Democrats and that makes it more interesting I think. Um, it doesn't appear that their rivalry particularly impeded either of them. Buchanan is elected president, Dallas is vice president and uh, I suppose it could have been reversed because their talents are roughly comparable.
0: Now, At some point, Buchanan is appointed minister to Russia.
1: Yes. Uh, under what president? President Jackson, and, th- and that leads to uh, a wonderful story. I'm not sure whether it's true, um, but as I mentioned earlier, uh, Buchanan had decided in 1824 to put his political chips in with Andrew Jackson, who was running for president against John Quincy Adams of, of Massachusetts, Um, who was running against William Crawford of Georgia um, and and John C. Calhoun, briefly, of, of South Carolina. Calhoun drops out early on and winds up becoming vice president. And then finally Henry Clay of Kentucky. Buchanan aligns with Jackson. He makes some statements about vote buying in the late 1824 election. Uh, that come back to haunt him and actually hurt Jackson's cause when the election comes to the House of Representatives. Jackson, frankly, doesn't trust Buchanan, doesn't think he's a reliable ally. Uh, Nonetheless, Buchanan remains a Jackson man, supports him and works hard for him in 1828, and when Jackson is elected that time, he owes Buchanan something. And so the story is, is that he sends him to Russia as, partly as a reward, but partly as a punishment. As uh, someone asked uh, Jackson, allegedly, why did you send Buchanan um, uh, to, uh, to Moscow or St. Petersburg? And Jackson says, well, I couldn't think of any place further away to send him. Uh, so there is a kind of um, tension between the great leader of the Democratic Party and this young rising on, on the rise politician. The thing is that's interesting is that Buchanan actually served his country very well in Russia, had a good relationship with the Tsar, uh, and didn't hurt himself at all being in Russia for several years. How long was he there? He was there about three years. What did he do when he came back? Ran for the United States Senate. That was always his goal. And he got uh, In those days, of course, you didn't run for the Senate the way you do today by getting political action committees to support you and then going out and, and uh, using the media to splash your name out there it, it was done it was an inside kind of game because the legislature elected United States Senators what he had to do was win enough senators win enough um, senators and and representatives within the Pennsylvania legislature to get him elected to to the United States Senate he had to in effect outmaneuver Dallas and some of the other people uh, at that time who were powerhouses in Pennsylvania and he did it And again, it's a sign that this man knew how to play politics. Uh, And he goes to the Senate for, I guess, 10 years. And he's, by all accounts, a a formidable senator, a person who is not the kind of person who's going to bring bills up every day that are going to be called the Buchanan bill, but who knows how to play the game of politics, knows who to side with, uh, knows when to show his cards and when not to show them. Who did he side with? Well, he was a a strict constructionist uh, Democratic senator. What that meant was that he was for frugal government, which made him a good ally of President Jackson and President Van Buren, both of whom wanted that. And frankly, he was a good friend of the South. Uh, The only way in which Buchanan really cannot support positions that Southerners are comfortable with is the tariff issue. Uh, The tariff issue is one of these uh, issues that uh, lasts practically the entire century as a major issue in American politics. And it's not intensely interesting in and of itself, but it has to do with putting a tax on manufactured products. The manufactured products uh, presumably will be manufactured in the United States because of these tariffs, keep foreign goods out. But it means that the consumer is going to pay a little bit more for the products. So it's not surprisingly, Southerners who are not engaged in industry don't want tariffs. Buchanan is representative of an emerging industrial state. He's got to support some tariffs. And so that's the one area in which he and his Southern friends are not going to see eye to eye. But on an issue like slavery, Buchanan is very friendly to the South. And what kind of slave-related issues came up while he was in the Senate? Well, The first kind of issue that comes up is one of these indirect issues. I mean, nobody is calling in the Senate in 1835 for the abolition of slavery. It's sort of the third rail of politics at that time. And also abolitionism itself is at best uh, a nascent movement. It is not a mainstream movement in American society. Nobody really in middle of the road politics believed anything other than the Constitution protected slavery where it was. The issue that Buchanan has to deal with relates to gag rules. Are anti-slavery people allowed to give petitions, submit them to the Congress for consideration, just so they can have debate over slavery? And what John C. Calhoun and the Southerners, at least the radical Southerners say, is no, they can't even give these petitions to the Senate. We're going to have, we're going to table them. And of course, Northerners didn't say, you're tabling them, you're gagging us. It's the gag rule. And Buchanan here has an interesting role because He really wants not to be seen as, quote, pro-Southern. He's got to be in favor of free speech for these anti-slavery people. So what he does is he tries to have it both ways, and he says, I think the abolitionists are terrible, but I also am opposed to gagging them. Uh, And that way he can talk to either audience and make it clear he's on their side.
0: And he served as Secretary of State for a time. Yes, he did. Under President Polk. Yes, he did. And you have a, I want to read from your book here, you say... uh, in the part that you wrote at one point Polk wrote of Buchanan that the man who was supposedly his key advisor was in truth the enemy within Buchanan has been quote has been selfish and all his acts and opinions have seemed to have been uh, controlled with a view to his own advancement so much so that I can have no confidence or reliance on any advice he may give upon public questions
1: was he really like that? If you're asking was Buchanan really like that, I'd back up and simply say this is, this is Polk's perception of, of Buchanan. It gives you an idea. This was not an ideal partnership. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, it's very hard to, to know how to understand the Polk-Buchanan relationship except in terms of, of, of really hardball politics. Buchanan was a person from the North who was acceptable to Southerners because he was not a hardcore anti-slavery man, not at all. Uh, He was, as I said, he was very talented. He had diplomatic experience in in Moscow. Uh, He would give weight, as they would put it, to the Polk administration. You ask the question, was Buchanan the things that Polk said he was? If you're saying, was he ambitious and self-interested, he has to plead guilty. But if you're saying, was he more ambitious and self-interested than the average person who was serving in Washington at that time, then the answer is no, he wasn't. Um, I think Polk saw Buchanan as perhaps too openly interested in the presidency. And Polk may have wanted to keep his options open for 1848 and saw Buchanan as a potential rival. Very hard to read that. Now, you know, Polk only runs once, does not run in, in 48, partly because he was so worn out by the uh, rigors of the job. You
0: said that Buchanan was considered for the presidency or or vied for it in 44, 48,
1: 52, and 56. Can you run down those and say what the circumstances were? Sure. 44 is clearly what you'd call just a trial balloon year. He had no real serious uh, expectation of being the nominee of the Democratic Party in the year 1844, but the Democratic race was wide open that year because President Van Buren had been defeated in 1840 for re-election and the President who was elected that year, Harrison, had died one month into his presidency. The man who succeeded Harrison, John Tyler, uh, was a, a renegade Democrat nominated to give balance and strength to the Whig ticket and was unacceptable to the Whigs. The, the, the situation politically in '44 thus was very fluid. Buchanan just figured, let me put my name out through a few friends like Jay Glancy Jones, a congressman from Pennsylvania who was sort of an operative for Buchanan. Get, get his name out. Just see what kind of response. And the response people gave was actually surprisingly positive. It was this Buchanan guy has, has what it takes, but he's a little young yet. And so consequently, when uh, the 1844 nominations were made, uh, we don't get a Buchanan presidency. We get a Polk presidency. Uh, by 48, he's clearly much more interested in it. And in 48, what happens is that uh, a man named Lewis Cass of Michigan comes up with an idea that Buchanan is kicking himself for not coming up with, and that is the idea of popular sovereignty on the slavery issue. Uh, And this has a great ring to it. Um, The Democrats can sell themselves as being in favor of popular sovereignty both in the North and the South. In the North, people are going to think that means anti-slavery, and in the South, they may think it means pro-slavery. And I think you could just say that Cass got to the slogan faster than Buchanan did. Buchanan ran with the idea of dealing with the slavery issue by running the Missouri Compromise Line all the way to California and to the Pacific, which itself was at least plausible but but not politically uh, attractive. What did popular sovereignty mean? That's a good question. Popular sovereignty meant many different things. It could mean at the most basic level that the citizens of a particular territory and then a particular state could decide for themselves whether they wanted to have slavery within the borders of that territory or state. One of the complexities of popular sovereignty is when do you let people decide what they want? Is it when a territory organizes as a territory? Is it during its territorial phase? Is it when it applies for statehood? This was a a difference that mattered because the general uh, understanding among Americans was once slavery got a foothold, it would be very impossible, or very hard or impossible to dislodge. And so Northerners felt popular sovereignty should mean that once a state is, once a, a territory is organized, immediately there should be a ballot of all the citizens of that community and they can decide whether they're going to have slavery or not. Uh, and politicians from uh, the 1840s and 1850s played this arcane game uh, and not very satisfactorily in the end.
0: So, uh, election of 1848, uh, he was.
1: Uh, who was elected? Well, in 1848, Lewis Cass was the Democratic nominee. He was the popular sovereignty advocate, uh, he, but he lost the election to a war hero, uh, Zachary Taylor, who was a Whig. Taylor was one of these characters. We've had two or three of them in our lifetimes or in our uh, experience as Americans of w- people who are not particularly political, who are catapulted into political uh, limelight by their war exploits. And Taylor had been the hero of Buena Vista in the Mexican War. He was uh, willing to run on the Whig ticket. He had the beauty of being a man, from a slaveholder from Louisiana who had many friends in the North and whose political views were were strangely anti-slavery despite his status as a slave owner. And so he could appeal across uh, the the sectional divide and he won a fairly convincing election in 1848 uh, against Cass. And Buchanan, uh... is is briefly at least in private life and uh... eighteen fifty two in eighteen fifty two buchanan thought he had a really good chance to be president i mean he felt he was the class of the field cass was still interested but cass had lost once buchanan is out of the picture he had run in eighteen forty eight as a spoiler candidate on the free soil ticket so so van buren is not a realistic candidate for the democrats anymore I think Buchanan was very disappointed when instead of getting the nomination he had to uh, smile and pretend to be happy when the nomination went to a New Hampshire Democrat named Franklin Pierce. Now you might ask why does Pierce get the nomination and not Buchanan? Was it that Buchanan was a poor politician? No it wasn't that. A lot of it is timing. The Democrats had lost the election of 1848 to a war hero. So what are they looking for in '52? They're looking for somebody who's got good credentials. Pierce, who had been an undistinguished senator from New Hampshire, had the virtue of having been a general in the Mexican War. Now the, the Whigs like to say the only thing he did during the war was fall off his horse, uh, but in fact he was a general. And so that combined with his doe-faced political views, the fact that he had substantial experience in Washington suggested he would make a good presidential candidate. Because in those days you didn't have presidential debates, at least not then. Uh, so they could simply use the media apparatus that was in place at the time to make Pierce out to be another Zachary Taylor. What is a doe face? A doe face in the, cl- in the standard um, uh, lexicon is a northern man with southern principles. And it's, it's a person, for example, who comes from New York or Connecticut or New Hampshire or Pennsylvania who is sympathetic to the South's needs in terms of slavery and slavery related issues. Um, it's obviously meant as a term of derision rather than a term of, of accolade. Uh, Buchanan would not have liked it if I had sat here and called him a dough face. But both Buchanan and Pierce are known in every textbook you'll ever read about the presidency or about American political history are known as dough face presidents because neither of them took strong stance against Southern interests or slavery during their presidencies. Did Buchanan have a role in the Pierce presidency? It's an interesting role. Um, Buchanan clearly was uh, entitled to some major post if the Democrats were elected in 1852, because he played a good soldier. He campaigned for Pierce. Pennsylvania went for Pierce in 52. Pierce owed Buchanan something. I think Buchanan would have liked to have been Secretary of State uh, again. Uh, But Pierce had promised a job to a New York Democrat named William Marcy. And so then Buchanan was basically told, what do you want? And he thought about it, and he thought about it, and he realized there was a lot of storms brewing in the country over the slavery issue. It might be a good idea to be out of the United States. And so he took the best diplomatic position available, minister to England. And I think he had four pretty happy years, or close to four years, uh, in London. And he came back and ran for president? He came back and ran for president. Uh, and it was, of course, uh, the smartest thing he did because what happened was is that the Pierce presidency imploded over the Kansas-Nebraska issue as President Pierce uh, did something that he probably, in retrospect, shouldn't have done, and that is he not only amended but discarded the Missouri Compromise rule and said that slavery could actually go above the line that the Missouri Compromise had provided for 3630, as we learned in our high school texts, if the people voted to let it go in that line. Now as it happened, there was a territory out in the Midwest, Kansas, that was just on the point of organizing for territorial status. And Senator Stephen Douglas of Illinois, along with President Pierce, pushed to allow Kansas to work on the popular sovereignty principle. Pierce used the powers of the presidency to get that bill through. Uh, Douglas, of course, was a terrific legislator and a terrific speechmaker, and he pushed hard for it. But the downside of the Kansas-Nebraska law is that it roused anti-slavery opinion in the North. They said, wait a minute. We had a rule here that said no slaves above 3630. Now they're opening the gates to slaves above 3630. Something's rotten. And then you get the situation where northerners run off to Kansas and southerners run off to Kansas trying to get a majority in Kansas in order to claim that state, either for freedom or slavery. Where's Buchanan in all this? He's safely tucked away at Grosvenor Square in London. Uh, and meeting with the the high um, principles of the British government and the royalty. It's a great position to be because he doesn't have to take a stand.
0: Did he have much opposition for the nomination in
1: 1856? He had some opposition for the nomination in 1856, but it was was a pretty easy uh, nomination for him. I mean, he was the most logical candidate for the Democrats. Why was he the most logical candidate? The Republicans, in 1856 were now a party organized to challenge the democrats for the presidency in the ashes of the whigs in the in the wake of kansas nebraska in the wake of the the caning of senator charles sumner over a speech he made about kansas uh, there was aroused northern public opinion some people feared particularly prominent democrats feared that the republicans might sweep the entire north and because the Republicans had, I mean, the North had more population, almost double the population of the South, more than double if you don't count the Southern slaves. If you get a politician who carries every Northern state, that politician can be president without a single vote out of the South. You needed to have a candidate, in other words, who came from the North on the Democratic ticket in 1856, but could appeal to Southern voters. Buchanan fit the bill. Longtime doe face many friends in the South, conservative on constitutional issues, conservative on slavery, conservative on economic issues as a good Democrat. He was the natural candidate and of course he had the political experience to be able to say I can do this job I've got the resume. Who did he run against? He ran against a former president as well as a former uh, hero of this country in the Mexican War and a pathfinder John Charles Fremont. Everybody knows, I think, about John Charles Fremont's exploits as a pathfinder. Some know about him as a military figure uh, in the Mexican War in California. But what I guess relatively few people realize is that he was the first candidate of the Republican Party for president. He was only about 39 years old at the time, very dashing figure, uh, and he was a popular candidate. Buchanan would run against him, and he would run against Millard Fillmore, who had served out the rest of Zachary Taylor's term. Fillmore was a former Whig a moderate on slavery issues and in many ways very similar to Buchanan in his political outlook. But what he was going to do was to try to unite old-line conservatives who feared for the Union with young, rowdy nativists who didn't like immigrants and Catholics and put together a coalition and sneak in and grab the presidency. The Know-Nothing Party? Yes, although they wouldn't call themselves that. They called themselves the American Party but history knows them as the Know-Nothing Party, because when people would ask them what their views were about immigrants or whether they had ever actually uh, hurt immigrants or intimidated immigrants, they'd say, I Know-Nothing, and that's how they got the name. How was the result? Well, the result was tight uh, as could possibly be. Um, Fremont, just as expected, was a very strong candidate in the North. Buchanan won the election by a narrow but convincing margin by carrying five northern states, and most of the southern states as well. I believe he carried virtually every southern state. Fremont, needless to say, did not get many votes south of the Mason-Dixon line. Buchanan needed to carry Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and Illinois to win the election, and he carried them. And that's how he got elected president. Many people in the south said that if Buchanan were not elected president in 1856, they would secede from the union rather than accept Fremont and the black republicans in power. And so that was a great impetus for many people to vote for Buchanan because he promised a stable leadership in America that was still united and perhaps somehow a resolution of this festering issue of slavery.
0: Let me ask you a little bit about yourself. You are a professor at Gettysburg College. Yes.
1: Can you talk about the college a little bit? Absolutely. I'm happy to. Uh, Gettysburg is one of the many strong liberal arts colleges in the United States. One of uh, a group that are associated together in Central Pennsylvania, the Central Pennsylvania Consortium Schools, Gettysburg, Dickinson, and Franklin and Marshall, each of them schools of about 2,000 students, uh, each of them stressing liberal arts, um, and each of them, I think, very distinguished in their own way. Uh, Gettysburg, needless to say, um, plays a bit on its um, access to the battlefield, and history is an important discipline at Gettysburg and a popular discipline, and so it's a very nice department to be able to teach in as a historian. What do you teach? I teach American history and I teach uh, uh, historical methods which is a foundation course in history at Gettysburg to try to get students acquainted with the, the discourses of history as well as the methodology of history in the 1990s. It's a it's a foundation course that enables them to go on and and learn how to do what they need to do to succeed in the rest of their courses. In terms of the substance I teach, I teach courses on 20th century America before World War II and since World War II, and I teach a seminar on Dwight D. Eisenhower and his presidency. It's a lot of fun. Uh, the students are very interested and uh, we have access to wonderful resources at the college to get students to to work with the primary documents. How long have you been there? I've been at Gettysburg since 1989. And you have a background as a journalist? I, I did spend time as a journalist. Uh, it's, a, it's sort of a long and complex uh, trail to get me to Gettysburg in that uh, when I graduated from college I Expected to go to Columbia Journalism School and become a journalist. I had been very involved in college as a journalist, and then I had worked, I'd gotten a Wall Street Journal fellowship and worked as a journalist for a summer in my junior year and enjoyed that immensely. And I thought I'd get a master's degree in history as just sort of some background before I went into journalism. But as life has a way of doing, I got momentum. And when I went off to graduate school, I enjoyed the history I was doing and the friends I had made. And I just stayed on and got a PhD. And then with a PhD, you begin to think, well, do I really want to be a journalist if I've put all this labor into writing a doctoral dissertation? Uh, And I went into academics and taught for several years, became a journalist through the back door, when in the 1980s my wife was at Dartmouth College, and I was at Dartmouth College, and my contract had run out. And I had to decide what to do next. And I didn't want to force my wife to make a move she didn't want to make. And just by the luck of the draw, the um, Concord Monitor, a very fine newspaper in the capital in New Hampshire, was looking for an editorial page editor and writer. And uh, they interviewed me, and uh, to my great luck, they offered me the job. And so I did that for several years. And uh, you've written other books? Yes, yes. Uh, This is the Buchanan book, I guess, is my fifth book. Um, My first book was um, a revision of my doctoral dissertation. It was a biography of a man Buchanan would have known very well but not liked very much uh, because uh, the man who was the political leader of of New Jersey's Whig Party and a United States Senator for many years, his name was Samuel Southard, he was a a foe of Buchanan's and they would have probably had a cigar and a drink together I suppose in Washington but there wasn't as much fraternizing between the parties as there may be now. Uh, So I wrote a biography of, of Southard I did a book on the governors of New Jersey uh, with a, a friend of mine. We, we, we edited a collection of essays about the governors of New Jersey from the colonial time right up to the 1970s, which was a great deal of fun. Um, and uh, I've also written uh, a book uh, that was a history of my hometown, and uh, that was a lot of fun to do because it enabled me to revisit my early days and my, my old acquaintance and to make some sense of the life I had grown up with. Where's your hometown? It's in northern Jersey in Bergen County, right outside of New York City. The town is called Bergenfield. It tends not to be well-known, but it is surrounded by communities like Hackensack and Englewood and Tenafly, which are a little bit better known outside of the North Jersey area. Uh, Unfortunately, the only claim to fame the town really has, aside from its band playing in the uh, the Macy's Day Parade every year is that uh, they had some uh, mass suicides of teenagers in the 1980s and for about uh, three or four weeks that was a front page news story around the nation as well as uh, something that Dan Rather and the, and the networks covered quite closely. And that was one of the tougher things I had to write about in the book.
0: You're listed as editor of this book. What's the difference between being an editor and a writer of a book?
1: Well, it's, it's, it's a big difference. I mean, an editor has an easier job because a chunk of the book is not uh, coming out of his or her hide. Uh, you know, when I wrote the, the books from scratch, they were mine from start to finish. Here, uh, a lot of the interpretations that are in this book are not mine. They're the interpretations of the distinguished scholars who contributed to it. So, as you know, we, we've got uh, several essays by leading historians, We've got a panel discussion from some superb historians on Buchanan's presidency, and then I've just written uh, some introductory material to try to set things in context about Buchanan. Um, But it's less work. The only harder part of editing a book, I think, is dealing with the different personalities and egos that you're dealing with when you try to edit their copy. Did you decide what uh, authors went in and which ones didn't? Right. The book itself stems from a conference that was held Um, in commemoration of of the 200th anniversary of Buchanan's birth in uh, 1791. And we invited, uh, the people at F&M who organized the conference, invited some really distinguished scholars to come, and I was asked if I would edit a volume that that came out of it if the quality of the presentations was high enough. And uh, after the program was done, we decided that it was indeed worth trying to collect the best papers, and that's what we did. Who asked you? Well, I was specifically asked by the assistant to the president at Franklin and Marshall College, uh, named David Stemeshkin. uh Stemeskin himself is a is a fine historian, who, who has spent most of his career in academics working as an administrator, and he was the person who was really the point person to make this conference succeed. He brought me in to it, and I really owe him a lot because not only did he ask me to be part of this, but He was an extremely good grantsman. He got money out of the Pennsylvania Humanities Council, which helped fund the conference and and helped subsidize this book. And it's published by Susquehanna University Press? Yes, it is. Who are they? Well, Susquehanna University Press is uh, part of a network of publishers that are associated with something called Associated University Presses, about 13 academic presses. Bucknell University, uh, Lehigh University, Kelly Dickinson University, uh, University of Delaware, a number of other prominent schools have presses. And Susquehanna, in the last few years, has added itself to that list.
0: Now, uh, getting back to President Buchanan, now President Buchanan, um, says in here, uh, his goal as president, and this is quoting Buchanan, is to arrest, if possible, the agitation of the slavery question at the North and to destroy sectional parties. What was the slavery agitation in the North?
1: Well, there were two kinds of slavery agitation in the North that I can immediately think of. The first slavery agitation in the North is called free soil, and that is to prevent any further expansion of slavery in the West. That was the mainstream position of the North in the 1850s, certainly among people who identify with the Republican Party. It was, look, the Constitution protects slavery as it is, but darn it, we're not going to let any more slaves go into the western territories because all it will do is bottle us working people up in the north and we'll have trouble in the north because people won't have the same opportunity. The other slavery agitation that's referred to clearly is abolitionism. And abolitionism, which took many forms, uh, has its central thesis was that slavery ought to be abolished and it ought to be abolished immediately. And that of course was a radical point of view, not held by more than three or four percent of the population in the year say 1857 were these reasonable goals? Were these reasonable goals? I mean, if you're talking in terms of uh, principles of human rights, clearly uh, abolitionism is a reasonable goal. Uh, but in in the context of the time, I think it would have been considered to be very much ex- an extremist point of view.
0: But Buchanan's goals for being oh, president. Buchanan's
1: goals. They were reasonable from the point of view that Buchanan was coming from, and that is to say, a conservative uh, southern sympathizer who is trying to calm things down. If you want to peel this away a little bit more and say, was it reasonable in the sense of being feasible, calming the slavery agitation? I think not. I think there was too much going on. There was too much momentum toward increasing the cycle of bitterness between the North and the South. It would have taken a political genius to arrest that. Uh, And Buchanan was many good things, but he was not a political genius.
0: Uh, he also writes if i can be instrumental in settling the slavery question and then add cuba to the union yeah. i shall be willing to give up the ghost and this is uh, william genapp 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 writes in here that uh, he wrote this without comprehending that these goals were totally incompatible
1: first of all why did he want to annex cuba well That's a good question. Cuba for him represented a number of things. One, just the expanding glory of America. Um, But I think he had this notion, somewhat far-fetched from our perspective but not uncommon at that time, that if you sent more slaves to places like Texas and Cuba, there might be fewer slaves in Virginia, Maryland, North Carolina. That somehow there would be this sucking sound of slavery being sucked down away from the Old South into the New South and into these new, new territories. Uh, I think he saw S- Spain as a decrepit colony, uh, a, a decrepit imp- empire with this colony in Cuba, and why couldn't we, a rising empire, grab it? Um, obviously, there are all kinds of political complications here because northerners didn't want any part of another slave colony, much less a possible slave state. But Buchanan had always been known for his support for Manifest Destiny and, and expansion of the nation. If he was aggressive in any way politically, things like Cuba, Mexico, um, just in general, American expansion, Mexican war issue, he was associated with all of these things. How did he operate as president? How did he operate as president? Well, he, he wanted to be as collegial a president as he could be. And it's, it's interesting you say that because... Uh, One of the things that stands out about Buchanan is the degree to which he wants to be the head of a cabinet of people who actually deliberate together, who get along, and who govern together. And he sees this as a sign of his own maturity, that he doesn't want to be a dictator, that he wants to reason together with cabinet officers who share his goals and and move the country in his view toward peace and prosperity. Uh, Now, in practice, this causes some tremendous difficulties for him because he picks people for the cabinet, I think, less on the basis of their abilities uh, than on the basis of their congeniality to him. And that may not be the best basis on which to, to shape a cabinet. I would argue that his cabinet does not serve him well at all. Who was in the cabinet? Well, he first off, you have to understand, he has mostly Southerners in the cabinet. And one of the reasons is, of course, to reward the South for having given him so many votes in 1856 but I think it's deeper than that, uh, Brian. I, really, I think that uh, it's, it's psychological. Who are the people he drinks with most and spends most time with when you, th- when you think about his southern friends? Southerners, I mean his friends in, in Congress or in, in uh, Washington, generally. He hangs out with Southerners. William R-, R. King, a senator from Alabama, was probably his closest friend, indeed his roommate for a number of years in Washington. But the people he nominates to serve in his cabinet are often people he's, f- he's socially friendly with. The, the most uh, notable one being Hal Cobb uh, of Georgia, who was a very rotund, pleasant 41-year-old in 1857 who became Secretary of the Treasury. And I would argue probably the only really good selection he made in the Cabinet. Um, there's a man named Jacob Thompson who's Secretary of the Interior. Uh, he's from, uh, I believe, North Carolina. Um, he's got several other Southerners. A man named Isaac Tusi is Postmaster General from Tennessee. Uh, I'm sorry, Tusi becomes Secretary of the Navy, Aaron Brown of Kentucky is Postmaster General. The only Northerners he's got in his cabinet are Jeremiah Black, who's Attorney General from Pennsylvania, who's an old political operator and ally of his, and a, a superannuated politician named Louis Cass from Michigan, who by this time, it was widely believed is almost senile. And the, the reason that Buchanan named Cass to the, nomin- to the, to the Secretaryship of State was twofold. One. He owed it to an old war horse in the party to give him a nice job when Cass was losing his Senate seat. And and secondly, he knew that Cass would be willing to let him run diplomacy. Cass basically made an agreement with Buchanan that he would take the secretaryship of state and just handle the routine with the help of a a secretary. Buchanan would steer the ship of state. Buchanan was particularly interested in foreign policy? Absolutely. I think that there's an analogy with Nixon there much more interested in foreign policy than domestic policy. And the analogy goes further, because while Nixon claimed to be mostly interested in foreign policy, if you look at his presidency, he's deeply involved in some really interesting and controversial domestic initiatives. Buchanan, for his part, gets sucked in and maybe even sucked down the drain on the domestic issues. The Dred Scott
0: decision was made while Buchanan was president. What was the Dred Scott decision, and what was Buchanan's
1: role in it? The Dred Scott decision was the beginning of, Buchanan's undoing. The Dred Scott decision was a court case that had been wending its way up the court system to the Supreme Court even before Buchanan was elected. It involved an effort by a a former slave named Dred Scott to get his freedom because his master had taken him from a a slave state into free territory. And the question was, could the master reclaim him, hold him as a slave? Did a slave have the right to sue? the the Supreme Court under the leadership of a slave-owning Marylander named Roger Brook Taney ruled in 1857 uh, that Dred Scott had no rights that any white man was bound to respect. I'm quoting from from the decision itself. Before Buchanan becomes president, the decision is still not handed down. In fact, it's going to be handed down in March of 1857. Coincidence here, Buchanan is going to be inaugurated on March the 4th. There is evidence that Buchanan began to poll some of the Supreme Court justices he was particularly friendly with to see what the ruling would be and to encourage them to come down with a particular ruling. Now historians disagree about what we actually know. Professor Philip Klein who's written the best biography of Buchanan um, argues that there was no tampering, that Buchanan may have spoken to several justices but he didn't tell them what to do. How would he you know want to do that? There's no question, though, that a president of the United States ought not be talking about an issue as explosive as this with Supreme Court justices before the decision is finally made. And he does do that. And in his inaugural address, he says to the American people, I have reason to believe that this great, fiery issue of slavery is going to be resolved in a week or two by the Supreme Court, which will hand out a decision which we all ought to respect and which ought to settle the the great sectional divisions. And the court, of course, does then issue the Dred Scott decision, but with a very different effect. And Buchanan supported the court's decision? Absolutely. He didn't, he didn't just support it the way Dwight Eisenhower supported Brown versus the Board of Education, which is to say that privately Eisenhower was very uneasy with that 1954 court decision which said no more segregation in public schools. But Eisenhower said, we have to uphold the law. This is what the Supreme Court says the law is. Therefore, I support it. What Buchanan is doing is making an emotional commitment to Dred Scott. To him, it's not just the supreme law of the land. It is the right decision. And so he's very vociferous in saying to the northern public, don't agitate anymore. Dred Scott settles the issue. But you can't wave a wand at something like slavery and just say, all right, it's decided now because the Supreme Court voted by a majority vote that this is the way it's going to be. The Dred Scott decision, in fact, energized the Republican Party and gave Buchanan fits. What was the Lecompton Constitution? That was the big blunder of Buchanan's presidency by most standards. The only person I know who really doesn't agree with that is, again, Professor Klein, whose biography of Buchanan, which is first rate, is highly sympathetic to Buchanan. Uh, Buchanan had to deal with the issue of Kansas. Uh, Kansas had been an issue in 56 as bleeding Kansas, which was a shorthand for the fact that Northerners and Southerners, pro-slavery and anti-slavery people, were fighting for power in Kansas. Kansas had not yet been organized to become a state because it didn't have the sufficient population, but it soon would. Buchanan thought that if he encouraged the admission of Kansas to the Union, that might end some of the disputation in Kansas, it might bring a democratic state into the Union, and it might help solve some of the problems of the slavery issue. And again, that blew up in his face because he was so eager to see Kansas admitted to the Union that he supported a constitution that was rigged that was written by a distinct minority, a very tiny minority of ruffians, uh, and that was a pro-slavery document. And by running roughshod over public opinion, both in Kansas and in Congress, that this was not a majority document, Buchanan sacrificed a lot of his political credibility. He parted ways with Stephen Douglas over that? Yes, that's the central fight of the Buchanan presidency. You're exactly right. Um, Douglas looks at this Lecompton Constitution as it is forwarded to Washington to get Kansas admitted to the Union. The president says these people met all the tests legally that they had to meet. They held a convention, they wrote a document, they put it up for referendum. The fact that the anti-slavery people wouldn't vote because they felt they'd been jobbed is not any concern of mine. The fact that a small percentage of the people of Kansas voted is not a concern of mine. The legal rights have been, the legal niceties have been adhered to. Douglas looks at it and says you know, you can call it anything you want, but I say it's spinach. It's not going to work because this is not a majoritarian document. And Douglas clashes with the president, breaks with the president, gives speeches against the president, and becomes the president's main foe in the Congress, man from his own party.
0: And it also says in here uh, about Buchanan, he, uh, his messages spewed out a continuous stream of invective against abolitionists and anti-slavery elements which alienated important sections of northern public opinion Buchanan believed that by defending the south he was preserving the Union
1: was he pro-slavery? No, not in the literal sense. Buchanan had spoken publicly uh, that slavery was a bad thing. Uh, How could he not coming from Pennsylvania? Pennsylvania was not a rabidly anti-slavery state but I think the general opinion in the state of Pennsylvania was that slavery itself was not a good thing. Buchanan would say that. But there's a difference between being uh, anti-slavery in the abstract and anti-slavery on a practical basis. Buchanan was anti-anti-slavery. Now think about that for a second. What he spent most of his career railing against was not the evils of masters lording it over slaves or lashing their property. What he spent much of his career uh, uh, railing against was abolitionist agitators who were trying to upset the, the, the local and the national political order. And to him, they were the bad guys, not the slave owners. You have to factor in again, Buchanan grows up in an era where slavery was sort of acceptable. The Constitution ratifies slavery. He's a constitutionalist. Uh, he has many Southern friends. He listens to their point of view regularly many more southern friends, I suspect, than New England friends. And uh, it's easy for him to, to slip into a kind of anti-anti-slavery mantra uh, while saying at the same time that he's anti-slavery.
0: Now, it was during his presidency that South Carolina seceded from the Union. Yes.
1: What was his response? It was a varied response. And again, it's a, it's a delicate issue because much of what you say about Buchanan's response to the... Um, secession crisis of 1860-61 depends on your perspective on what should have happened, not what he could have actually accomplished. Um, let me s- simply say that uh, his response was to say that secession was wrong and illegal, but at the same time that there was no responsibility, indeed no right for the President of the United States personally or for any agent of the pr- of the federal government to prevent secession. And this is a as you can see, a somewhat complex and difficult position to to adhere to because you've got the practical matter of a broken union. Historians have been very harsh on Buchanan. Uh, and when you think about it a little bit, indeed, if you think about it a lot and look at the documents, it's hard to understand why they have been so harsh to him except that they have uh, a view of Buchanan that, that is based on his weakness and his errors earlier in his presidency. What would they have done in the wake of of South Carolina's secession that would have been more useful? Had Buchanan tried to send an army to crush the secessionists in South Carolina in the fall of 1860 or January of 1861, what do you think would have happened? It's pretty easy to predict. Every state south of the Mason-Dixon line would have seceded from the Union. Uh, Remember, all the states don't secede simultaneously. South Carolina goes out first, and then Alabama and Mississippi go out a little bit later. But most of the Upper South is hanging in the balance. They're not sure which way they want to go. Opinion is very divided in the South. Buchanan didn't want to break the union any more than it had to be. He was hopeful somehow a resolution could come. I think in his heart he felt, even if I can't solve this problem, I don't want to make it worse for the next president. Let him deal with it. I think that's a normal reaction.
0: Is there anything he could have done any time in his term that could have averted the Civil War?
1: I think that if he had been sensible enough not to spend his political capital on on Kansas um, and the way that he did, that he could have avoided some anger and bitterness that clearly cropped up. I think if he had been more even-handed in his overall assessment of the country and his leadership of the country from 1857 to 61, I think we might not have gotten to the past we did. But now, having said that, I mean, to me the key to the secession movement, Brian, is really the election of 1860. The only way you avoid secession in 1860 is if you elect a Democrat. You can argue, if you want to do a little what-if in history, that if Buchanan had not um, attacked Douglas, had not deprived Douglas of patronage, had not tried to uh, basically stuff Kansas down Douglas's throat, and had supported Douglas, the most popular living Democrat in 1860 for the presidency, and that Douglas had won, we would not have had a civil war in 1860. Maybe not. But certainly with a Republican in the White House it was pretty much foreordained.
0: Now, it also says in here uh by the time he became president at the age of 65, he was a political anachronism. He, this is again William Gnab. Gnab. Uh He was a political anachronism. He looked back to an earlier era of American politics when anti-slavery was disreputable, sectionalism was condemned, and the northern majority was ready to make concessions to the south for the sake of the Union. He never appreciated how much the political situation had changed during the past few years. How had it changed?
1: Well, you had a, a whole series of movements in the country coming out of the evangelical revivals of the 18 teens, 1820s, 1830s, in which people were, were looked at the world uh, from a much more, say, fundamentalist perspective than they, than they did. You know, everybody wanted to reason together in the late uh, 1700s and early 1800s. Reason was not the dominant motif in American politics and American culture uh, in the years from 1820 to 1860. Buchanan cuts his teeth in an earlier era. He's very much a genteel character. I think he's not up to date with what's going on in the country. Now, Professor Gnapp is particularly uh, sharp in his rebukes of Buchanan. I would say um, that much of what he says is, is, is realistic and, and, fi- and, if not fair, certainly um, plausible. Uh, but you don't have to argue that Buchanan was completely out of touch to argue that Buchanan was not effective. After all the studying you've done, do you like him? Buchanan? Not particularly, no. Uh, I think that he's a person I respect for his ability to climb the greasy pole. And in politics, that's what matters in terms of, of judging somebody, until they get to the presidency, and then they've got to show what they're made of. My feeling is Buchanan could have been a reasonably effective president if he'd been elected two decades earlier.
0: Here is the book, James Buchanan and the Political Crisis of the 1850s. Michael Berkner, thanks for being with us. Thank you.
1: You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. Full episodes of PA Books, as well as other PCN programs, are available to stream with the PCN app. Visit PCNTV.com or the App Store for details.